It's always good to be here with you folks, and uh, Happy New Year. Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and for your uh, concern for how we see you in our lives and the way in which you work in our lives. And I pray, Father, that this morning you'd give us insight into that through the, the word of, that you bring to us through the life of Elijah. And, and Father, I pray that you'd bless the thoughts that you've laid on my heart and help me as I communicate these to my friends here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, <clears throat> things about New Year's is, is often uh, the idea that Bryce mentioned about resolutions and how we feel like we're going to make some drastic change. One of the things I, I saw online this past week was someone who posted two pictures next to each other and the caption was the new me. And if you're musical, you'll understand this. One was a picture of a C sharp and the, and the next one was a picture of a D, a, a, a D flat. And a C sharp and a D flat are the same, same note. But, but the caption was the new me. They look completely different. If, if you're looking at it on a, a musical score, C sharp looks completely different from a D flat, but it's the same note. And often when we, we turn the page on the year and we think about how our lives are going to change, the new challenges that are before us, what we find is that we just carry a lot of what we've always been into the newness of whatever it is that we're entering into. And what I, I like to call those the narratives that we carry around in our lives. So I want to talk to you this morning about this whole idea of narratives and how they affect us because they, they affect certainly how we look at ourselves. I think every moment of every day we're booting off of a narrative, uh, a story, <clears throat> a sense of who we are that we carry with us. Uh, throughout throughout life, but I think we also set our priorities a lot of times by our narratives, and certainly we interpret our world by our narratives. And it's it's striking how our narratives can be so different when we look at the same things. If I say CNN and Fox, you get the idea, right? I mean, they're all kind of reporting on the same stuff, but it's from completely different narratives on how they see the world. And, and everything that comes their way begins to get interpreted by those, those narratives. I went to, uh, this week I went to the movie Richard Jewell. I don't know how many of you, have any of you seen that already? It's the movie about the fella who in 1996 was a, a security guard at the Olympic Park when the bomb went off. And at first he was the hero because he found the bomb and he evacuated uh, as many people as he could and, and really limited the amount of damage that it did, although there were a few people that, that died. But very quickly, over the next two or three days, he turned into the primary suspect. And so this, this whole movie is about how one can take the same set of facts and see a hero emerge but over here, we also see the same set of facts can make someone into a villain. Um, that's just how our narratives guide our lives and, and the power and impact that they have on our lives. So the question this morning that I, I want to ask you is, what is your narrative about yourself? And how exactly does God fit into that narrative in your life as you look ahead to what uh, you have before you? I want to do that by looking at the story of Elijah. I'm not going to read um, the scripture. Uh, I'm going to read some scripture a little bit later, but not right now. If you want to follow along a little bit in your Bibles that are, that are there on the floor, it's on page 300, actually, 300 and 301. 
It's in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Actually, in chapter 17, Elijah comes onto the scene, and he comes kind of out of nowhere. Uh, it just says Elijah the Tishbite did this, and, and he's off and running. But very quickly, he turns into someone that uh, is, is very influential in the life of, of Israel. And he does some pretty amazing things. He has some powerful prayers. He prays for, uh, he prays that, the, that it wouldn't rain. He prays that it will rain. There's this sense in which, uh, or at one point, God tells and directs Elijah to go live with the widow at Zarephath. And, and the widow at Zarephath had very, she had a son and very little means. Uh, and and uh, Elijah goes to her and she feeds him even though uh, she has very little flour, uh, very little means in which to take care of him. And the Lord continues to multiply that. Um, the way that that story goes on, at, at one point her son becomes very sick and actually dies. And Elijah, <clears throat> uh, the, the widow, begins to, you, you know, just really complain at Elijah, has the Lord sent you here to, uh, to really kill my son and to, and to bring this calamity upon my house? And Elijah says, give me your son. He takes her son upstairs and he breathes life back into him. He actually raises him from the dead. And when we, when we read that story, I think we're, we often lose the impact of it because in the Bible, there are several accounts of resurrections from the dead, right? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There are other people that are raised from the dead. But here's the thing. Up to this point, no one had ever raised anyone from the dead. And Elijah had, uh, had the faith to take a son upstairs and, and breathe on this son and breathe life back into this son and be used by God to raise him from the dead. This is pretty impressive stuff. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make here. It's not just run of the mill, you know, he had a good day. He raised the dead. And no one had ever done that before. Um, then he goes from there <clears throat> to in chapter 18, one of the most um, incredible scenes in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a contest, if you will, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the false prophets in the land of, of Israel. And, and there was a clash always going on between uh, the true prophets and the false prophets. And, and so in 1 Kings 18, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff going on, but they finally end up on Mount Carmel. And they have this incredible experience of a contest between the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah as the prophet of God. And, and the, basically the contest is this. We're each going to have a sacrifice here, a bull, and we're going to uh, each ask our God to call down fire upon the bull, and whichever one burns is indicative of who's the true God. And so it's this, it's this great story where all day long the prophets of Baal, there were 450 of them, they're, they're marching around their sacrifice and cutting themselves and blood. It says the blood's gushing out from them. They're, they're trying everything they know possible to, uh, to have Baal answer them and burn their sacrifice, and nothing happens. And then when Elijah steps up to the plate, at that point he says, well, let's dig. He, he digs a trench. He, he tells the people, fill it with water. He, he douses the sacrifice with water, everything he can possibly do to, to keep this thing from burning. And then, he's, and then he offers this prayer to the Lord that basically says, Lord, show yourself strong. 
uh, show yourself to be the true God. And at that point, fire comes down from heaven and consumes everything. And it's just, just this mind-blowing scene that, that you have there. And immediately, the people rush forward to take the prophets of Baal, and they're put to death. They're put to death. This was serious stuff. And you would think that when Elijah is going from raising the dead to seeing this miracle and that miracle, the contest on Mount Carmel, that he would be at the pinnacle, the apex of, of his life, that his narrative would be very strong. It would be a very strong narrative, wouldn't it? Well, the next day, when you get into uh, the chapter 19, the king, Ahab, told his queen Jezebel uh, all that had taken place. And Jezebel was very upset about this. And word got to Elijah that Jezebel was upset. And Elijah experienced a major crash. A major crash. He went from the height of the experience on Mount Carmel um, to being in total fear of what the queen could do to him, that the queen could, could somehow take his life. He crashed that day, and he said he even wanted to die. That's how desperate he was at that point. And it's hard for us to understand how, how one man can go from being at the center of God's great victory to the next day, a few days later, just wanting to, to shrivel up and die. But God had something that he wanted to challenge about Elijah's narrative that was very, very important. And so God sent an angel to take care of Elijah for a couple of days to feed him, to nourish him, because Elijah was going to take a 40-day journey from where he was down to Mount Horeb. Now, this was God's idea to take Elijah down to Mount Horeb. In one sense, uh, you could ask what, what was God thinking, but also what was Elijah thinking? Mount Horeb, uh, the one other place that that name is mentioned in, in the Bible is the scene of the burning bush when God called Moses, the bush that burned, but it wasn't consumed. But as we connect other dots in the Old Testament, we find most scholars believe that Mount Horeb is also the same as Mount Sinai where God gave the law. And so God is telling Elijah, get ready, get set. I'm going to take you on a journey, and we're going to end up at this great mountain that has been the central uh, focus of the people of Israel. It's where God you know, spoke to Moses. It's where he gave the law. All these great things have happened on Mount Sinai. And, and God says to Elijah, that's where you're going to go. Now, I think as Elijah took that journey, it was a 40-day journey. It was about 300 miles. That meant that every day he was traveling about seven and a half miles on average through the desert uh, for 40 days. That's just a lot of time to think. It's a lot of time for him to come to grips with uh, what he believes about himself, what he believes about God. In other words, a lot of time to create his narrative before God and, and to come up with what he really thinks is is going on. And I think Elijah was expecting that as he went down to Mount Horeb, where, where God's demonstration of power had been uh, so dr dramatic uh, in those various events. If you remember, when God gave the law, there was lightning and, and uh, there, there was all sorts of natural events, supernatural events that were going on. And, and Mos Moses was up there by himself. Now Elijah is going there and he's thinking the same kind of thing is going to happen. I'm going to experience 
God's power. Um, and, and yet what God really wanted to do was not so much show Elijah his power as much as give him a new perspective on how to see himself and how to see his particular calling. So, so Elijah gets down uh, to Mount Horeb. He thinks that this is where he's going to have this great encounter with God. And, uh, and in verse uh, 9, at the end of verse 9, it says, There he came to a cave. Uh, this is in chapter 19, and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And so now here's Elijah's chance to tell his narrative to the Lord, this narrative that he's, he's developed over 40 days of traveling 300 miles in the desert. And in verse 10, Moses uh, or Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's his narrative. That's what he thinks is going on in the grand scheme of things, that uh, he's been zealous for God, but no one else is left, and he's the only one. And I think in some ways, Elijah probably felt that at that point, <clears throat> he was far more critical to God's plan than what he really was. He thought he was far more critical to God's plan than what he really was. He, I think as he went to Mount Horeb, maybe one of the things that he was thinking about was uh, he was going to bring this whole thing to a close. It all started there at Sinai. And now it's, he's going to come back and report to God about how drastic things are at this point and say, let's just wrap this up. It was a failed mission. It didn't work. I'm the only one left, and they want to kill me. And if they can kill me, the whole thing will come crashing down. And so what God does at that point in verse 11, um, he says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Um, when, when Elijah went into the cave in verse 9, um, it actually is probably a reflection back on the, the scene with Moses where God showed Moses his, his, the backside of him. He says, you can't see my face and live, but I'll show you my backside. And, and he brought Moses out of a cave to see that it very well could be the same cave. But there... The, the Lord says to him in verse 11, stand on the mount before the Lord. So come out of the cave. Come to the mouth of the cave, I think is what he's saying. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So just imagine that. He's in this cave. He comes to the mouth, and this wind begins to howl in such a way that it tears the rocks off the side of the mountain. And, and this incredible scene of power is on demonstration to Elijah. But the text goes on to say the Lord was not in the wind. He wasn't in the wind. That's not what the Lord wanted to show Elijah. And after the wind, it says an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. And in my, my mind's eye, I see Elijah 
standing, the Lord's brought him out to look at all this stuff. And as the wind howls, I, I see kind of Elijah taking a few steps back in the cave. And then, and then the uh, earthquake comes along and he's thinking, I'm going to get trapped in here further. And he's just more and more fearful backing up. And then the fire and the heat of it coming through uh, the mouth of the cave probably sent him all the way to the back of the cave. And then it's at that point, it says, after the fire, the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire was the sound of a low whisper. And it's as if God now is bringing Elijah back out, kind of bringing him back out to the front of the cave with a whisper so he can hear the Lord. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. And it said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? See, God's wanting to not give him a demonstration of power. He wants to give him a new perspective. And so here's what Elijah says. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. If you look at that and compare it to the narrative Elijah had before this vision that he had of, of, of the power of God and God speaking to him in this whisper, what you'll notice is there's no difference. And that that's, has struck me in a new way recently because I think a lot of times we read these stories of great events that happen in the Bible and we say, wow, if I had lived through that, if that had happened to me, my life would be changed. I'd, 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 it'd be so much easier to believe and have faith and trust and all those sorts of things if I saw those kinds of miracles. But here's Elijah. He goes in and the Lord says, what are you doing here? He gives him this narrative and then God shows his power, his power through earthquake and wind and fire. And then he brings him forward with this whisper of a voice and says, what are you doing here? And nothing has changed. I want you to see there the power that narratives have in our lives. You can have that kind of encounter with God and not have your narrative be changed. That's incredible. But if you look at the words, they are the exact same words from one to the next. He can't get off of that narrative. And you see the problem with Elijah's narrative that he's sharing before the Lord. I, I see really three things here, just real briefly, that it's based on fear and not faith. That's the first thing. It's based on fear and not faith. He's afraid of the king and the queen. And he doesn't have faith in the God that could burn a sacrifice, that could tear rocks off the side of a mountain, uh, a God that could raise the dead. Uh, he's lost that faith. Instead, his narrative is based on on fear that all these other things are happening. Secondly, it's focused on circumstances and not on God's promises. It's focused on circumstances and not promises. And then the third thing is that it really is, when you read it and, and, you, and you think about it, it's really a narrative that's fixated on himself and not on God. It's fixated on himself and not on God. He sees himself, as I said, more crucial to God's plan than what what he really is. And so um, <clears throat> the narrative doesn't change. Uh, even after this encounter with God, Elijah's saying the same thing. So now what is God going to do? 
for Elijah. Well, God goes on in verse 15 to say, say this. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of, of uh, this uh, place, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, uh, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. That's just kind of a, when on the surface, it seems like kind of a strange response to where Elijah is at that point in his life. Uh, depressed, discouraged, thinking the world is going to end around him, thinking that, that all of God's plan is really coming to naught. And God gives him this instruction to go out and, and um, anoint some kings and anoint a prophet, and there's still others left out there. I think what God's really trying to uh, tell Elijah in one big sense is, hey, chill out. <laughs> chill out. You, you know, you've made this into a much bigger thing. But because you've centered it on yourself, you've made it into this much bigger thing than what it really is. You need to chill out. And then secondly, you need to do your job. You see, that was part of the job of the prophet was to anoint kings. It was part of the job of the prophet to anoint a successor. The problem was that Elijah just thought it all was going to end with him. Uh, he really thought in, in one sense that if you want to put it into a baseball analogy, that he was the closer and it was the bottom of the ninth. And, and he was the one who, who had to bring in the goods. And, and if he could just close the game off, it was all going to work out really well. And then, and then the, uh, you know, the opposing team had this great rally, and, and now Elijah thinks it's all gone, uh, gone to seed. And, and God is telling Elijah there, um, you know, you just do your job and let me worry about what's going to happen with everything else. Because he's really telling Elijah to continue the analogy. It's not the bottom of the ninth. We're still on the top of the second. That's what he's telling Elijah. We're in the top of the second, and you're not the closer. You're middle relief. You know, that's all you are. You're not the, you're not the star of the show. You're, you're an important part of the show, but you're not the one that is going to have the focus in the final analysis. And so he tells him, just go out and anoint another prophet. Pass the baton to someone else. They will take it from there. And Elisha, really, I mean, one of the things Elisha prayed for was a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and he got it. And when you go on to read the story of Elisha and everything that Elisha did, you realize that, that God did some incredible things through Elisha that he never did through Elijah. And, and so it's, it's the Lord's way of saying, life is going to go on. My plan is going to go on. And, and what's really important is that my plan is bigger than your dreams. My plan is bigger than your dreams, Elijah. Uh, you dreamed that you would be the one that would be the focus of revival and bringing the people of Israel back to God. Um, <clears throat> you're, you're, you've got a significant role, but you're not the closer. You're not the closer. And so he says, chill out, do your job. My plan is bigger than your dreams. You know, there's uh, ultimately God's plan in all of this. 
was for the prophets and like Elijah and Elisha and all the other prophets that we have in the Old Testament uh, to continue to pass the baton to one another through, through the years until at some point that baton would be given to John the Baptist who was really, uh, we, John the Baptist, we read about him in the New Testament, but really he's the last Old Testament prophet. That's who John the Baptist is. He's the last one of the Old Testament prophets that they've all been passing the baton until they get to him. And then he's the greatest, we're told. Jesus says no one's greater than John. Why? Because John got to be the one to say, here's the closer. Here's the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He's taking away the sin of the world. And he got to point the finger at Jesus. And it was Jesus who would, who would be the one who would finally bring God's plan to its, its, uh, its apex, its conclusion there and his life and his death for us. But you know, the narrative even of Jesus' life and death was one that was hard for the disciples to understand. In Luke chapter 24, we have this incredible uh, story of two disciples who after Jesus had been raised from the dead, were on their way to Emmaus and, and Jesus actually appears to them as they're walking along the way. And, and these disciples, as Jesus appears to them, uh, he notices that their faces are downcast and they're sad. And, and, uh, and Jesus says, what's, what's the problem here? What's the problem? And uh, <clears throat> one of them named Cleopas, this is in Luke 24, verse 18, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And what I want you to see is the power of narrative here, okay? And he said to them, what things? You know, he's trying to bring them out. What, what are you talking about? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, think about that. Think about the, these facts that they are telling to Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They're all true. They're all true, but they're downcast. They're sad about that. What they've recited to Jesus is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus was the one to come and be condemned and crucified and die for our sins and be raised from the dead. And they're reporting it all, but they're all upset because their narrative is that everything went south. And Jesus says to them at that point, uh, as, as they're walking along the road, he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all it is the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A little bit later, they get to Emmaus. They sit down and they have dinner and, and uh, Jesus breaks bread with them and, and then he kind of disappears and all of a sudden they realize who it was they'd been talking to. 
And do you think their narrative changed at that point? Sure, that, at that point, their narrative did change. Uh, but, but the power of narrative, again, rears itself up in the story of, of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Because the narrative everyone was expecting was a more triumphant uh, first century political kind of narrative that Jesus was going to turn Rome on its head. And it was, they were, he was going to be the savior of his people in a, in a more material and, and historical kind of sense. They didn't understand the big plan of God. And as a result, they, they were discouraged and they were sad. But the gospel is that even God can take those things which seem to be irredeemable and use them uh, to bring salvation to us and to change our lives. Well, what are the takeaways for us from this? I, I think in a, in, in a way there's just a few things I want you to, to be thinking about this morning as you, as you leave here today. One is just what is the overarching narrative in your life? How do you see yourself? How do you interpret what's going on in your life? Um, is, is it uh, affecting you in a, in a certain way uh, as you look at what God has given you to do? Uh, how, is it, how does it affect your self-image? Where does God fit into that narrative? God didn't fit into Elijah's narrative. It was Elijah uh, alone. And so some of us, I think, we need to be awakened by that because we're legends in our own mind, you know. We, and, and we think that we're, we're more important than what we really are. And sometimes we need to be knocked down a little bit. Uh, to see ourselves not as the closer, but the middle reliever. You know, the, we're, we're the ones that are just kind of, kind of doing our job in the middle of the story, and, and we're not, we're not going to be the star. You don't have to be a star uh, to be in God's, God's show. Uh, that's, that's a Motown tune, right, way, from way back. Uh, I won't sing you a few bars of that, but you can, you can pull it up on YouTube. Um, you don't have to be a star. You just have to do what God's called you to do. That's what Elijah needed to see and needed to hear. Just do your job. Fulfill your calling. Uh, I think others of us, we, we don't uh, carry around a narrative that says we're legends in our own minds. I think sometimes, sadly, um, we've allowed our narrative to define ourselves in a negative way. And we enter into the new year thinking, yeah, it's not going to be any different. Uh, each new day, it's not going to be any different. I'm just carrying that baggage from the day before, the year before, the decade before, whatever it is, and, and things really can't change. Um, if that's where you find yourself this morning, I, I would just challenge you to reflect on your narrative and ask yourself, is it based on fear or faith? Where is God in that narrative? Where, where is what God has done for you? in that narrative. Jerry Bridges, uh, the author, said at one point, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And he went on to say, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond your need of God's grace. Uh, we need, as we sang earlier, we need you, Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. That's got to be our narrative. That has to be how we see our lives. That has to be how we feel that we are going to uh, be able to make progress in our lives and move, move ourselves forward. Make sure those narratives are not based on fear. Make sure they're not, they're not just self-centered narratives focused on circumstances. Make sure that your narrative leaves room 
uh, for God's work in your life and God's mission in your life as you look ahead to the new year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have not uh, told us that we have to be all closers or all stars in order to be of any value uh, to you. Um, Lord, we thank you that our, our worth is not based upon what we have done or what we've not done, but it's based upon what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you that, that you were the one, you are the one who came and, and who lived our lives for us, died death in our place. And we pray that our, our narratives would reflect the hope that you desire to give us in that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.